A few years ago, my wife and I started watching the PBS series Downton Abbey. I was not sure how that was going to go over. There was a lot of noise. Raise your hand if you've seen Downton Abbey. Wow. Okay, I did not expect that. Great. So you'll know this illustration. If you're not familiar with it, Downton Abbey is essentially, it's a show that centers around this kind of royal family and their royal estate in England. But in the very first episode, drama hits the family as they discover that not just the first heir to the estate, but the second heir to the estate have both died on the Titanic, which leaves a third heir, a distant cousin, working class cousin, mind you, to be the new heir to the estate of Downton Abbey. This cousin's name is Matthew. I want you for a moment to just put yourself in Matthew's shoes when he received that letter. The letter that said, you have just gone from working class to royalty. From legal practitioner to the lord of a kingly estate. That is an identity shift. That is a transformation, not just of who you are, but of the very future you have before you. And this morning, I want us to look to a different letter, a better one, and one that was written for you, and one that presents an identity shift of infinitely greater magnitude. So if you would, please open your Bible to the book of Galatians, the letter of Galatians, chapter 3, where we will find some of the most remarkable verses not only of the identity of these Galatians who Paul's writing to, but of every Christian throughout the ages, including those of us in this room this morning. If you've been here with us over the weeks, you'll remember there's been essentially an identity crisis in Galatia. These Christians who a few years ago, Paul brought to them the gospel and they believed it. He taught to them that they would be justified, made righteous before God, by faith. And they had faith, and so they understood themselves to be Christians. And yet, after Paul left them, false teachers came into their churches and started saying, Oh, yeah, 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 faith is important. But that's not the whole story. If all you have is faith, that's only kind of getting you part of the way there. If you want to be a full Christian, a first class Christian, then you need not just faith. But you need to observe the entire Jewish law. A claim that Paul rejected last week by proving the law was never meant to replace faith. Rather, the law was intended to drive God's people back to faith, to expose them of their need for faith, lest they otherwise look to themselves for righteousness. So with this defense behind him, Paul essentially turns in our verses this morning to tell these Galatians what it all means for them, who they are, and what it is about their future that has changed by their becoming Christians. And he offers them two main answers. The first, you are united in Christ. You'll see that in 326 to 29. You are united in Christ. And the second, 
you are adopted as sons. You see in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. So if you would, let's look there now. It can be found on page 1813 in the Pew Bibles in front of you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Paul writes, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to promise. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, though he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. So Paul begins by saying, you are, point number one, united in Christ. He makes this profound statement in verse 26 that by faith in Jesus, Christians actually become sons of God. That is to say, they become so closely united with Jesus, who is the son of God, that God now sees them as he sees his son. He treats them as he treats his son, and he views them, counts them as sons along with his son. And the reason, verse 27, Paul says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. Which is not to say, he's, he's clearly not saying that baptism is how you are clothed in Christ. That would undermine the entire doctrine of justification by faith that he's been arguing the, throughout the whole letter. Not to mention the previous verse where he said we are made sons of God by faith, not faith and baptism. Rather, he is pointing to what baptism itself represents, what baptism points to. It is a representation of our Christians being united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. You know, as you are baptized and go underwater, you are being, in effect, united with him in his death. And the penalty of sin is symbolized as having been fully exhausted upon you, completed, poured out, such that it has nothing left to exhaust upon you. But then when we come up out of that water, when we come out from under the water, we are then united with him in his resurrection. We are made like him in his victory over sin, in his victory over death. And we stand before God righteous as he is righteous. So I could probably stand up here and offer a 
endless list of illustrations of how well my daughter understands being clothed in the identity of someone else. So when she puts on her Queen Elsa dress and she looks at daddy and says, I am Queen Elsa, look at my clothes. There is no question that I am to treat her as Queen Elsa, to even serve her as Queen Elsa. But instead, I would rather point us back to one of my all-time favorite illustrations of this in the scriptures, Zechariah chapter 3, which is probably a fairly obscure chapter in the Bible. So let me give a little bit of context. Zechariah is a prophet, and the Lord is giving him a vision of how he intends to make his people righteous. So he gets this vision, and the people he sees in the vision are the high priest of Israel named Joshua, the one who is to be the holiest of holies among the people of Israel, and for that matter, the people in the entirety of the world. So here's Joshua, the man of holiness, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord. But the description God gives him, the the visual God gives him of this holy man, he says he was standing before the angel of the Lord in filthy rags. Filthy garments. I wonder if you've ever felt that way before. As though the all-seeing gaze of God is exposing your guilt and uncleanliness, your unworthiness of his love. Well, then to make matters worse for Joshua, he has Satan in the vision standing at his right hand accusing him of everything he's ever done wrong. So imagine, not only are you feeling exposed right now, but on this screen you see a continued rotation of every sin ever committed in your life being put on public display for God to see. With Satan saying to God, there is no way for you to be just and let him off the hook. Look at this list of sins he has committed. But what does the Lord say? Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Then the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin. And I will put rich garments on you. Friends, that is the identity shift of the Christian, the spiritual rags to riches in a sense. When Christ sees us come to him, as Isaiah says, with all of our righteous deeds as filthy rags before we came to know him. And he says, I will take away your sin. I will put on me your filthy rags and take off my robe and give you my royal robes. He wears our rags and gives to us his royal robes. Snatching us, as he says, from the fire of condemnation. More than that. He silences the accusation of the devil himself 
For what can the devil say once God has declared you justifiably righteous? Is this you? Have, have you known this identity shift? If you haven't, Paul says it is, it is as though it's held out to you, offered to you, the perfect garments of Christ held out to you if you would turn away from your sin and trust in him by faith and trust in the Lord Jesus by faith. And if you have done this and known this great shift, is there greater reason for you to rejoice today? Friends, what can man do to you? What can circumstances do to you? What can the devil himself afflict you with that is able to inhibit your source of rejoicing insofar as that truth remains true, that you are clothed in Christ's righteousness by faith? Are there circumstances in your life that threaten to undo that joy? If so, I would encourage you to meditate on this truth. This is to be the fuel of your fire, the flame that keeps you walking in holiness and faithfulness. This identity shift that every Christian throughout the ages has united under. For we all are united in Christ. Which I wonder if you picked up on that in verse 27 when he said, All of us, all of you who have been baptized into Christ, all of you who were baptized, all together have come with filthy rags. All together have been clothed with the same righteousness of Christ. That is why in verse 28 he turns to say, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither uh, male or female. He's not saying there is no room for personal distinctives. He's not removing the fact that I am different than my wife or that we have different ways of carrying out our God-given characteristics. What he's denying is that the differences between our races or our social statuses or even our gender would ever have any bearing at all on our standing before God. This is what Paul meant back in chapter 2, verse 6, when he said, God shows no partiality. God does not look at us on the basis of our external appearances. Those differences exist. But when we're talking justification, we're talking his view of us. It is in no way on our external race or gender or social status, but entirely, in this case, for Christians on the clothing that they all together wear, which is Christ's. And that's what made it so abhorrent to Paul. When Peter would separate himself from the Gentiles back in chapter 2, when they're fellowshipping together, and then the Judaizers come in, and and Peter pulls back thinking, "Ah, I probably shouldn't talk with the Gentiles. They're less clean than us. No. There's no difference between you and them. If you both have worn the same clothes in Christ, you are both together equally righteous before God in Christ. What a false statement that makes if Peter does that. So Paul concludes then, You are all one in Christ Jesus. For if you belong to Christ, then you are all Abraham's seed and all heirs according to the promise. 
So this, friends, is to be the Christian community, the new community, the one that has, I mean, look around, many differences in the people that sit in the pews. And yet one commonality that is sufficient to unite all of us around that single truth, this single equalizer, that we all share in common, each of us coming before God in the same faith, having put on the same clothes of righteousness. And not one of us, on our own merit, contributing a single inch more than the next in our justification. We are, as Paul is saying, united in Christ. So I wonder if your union with Christ is fundamental to your identity. When coworkers or colleagues or somebody comes up to you and asks who you are, what are those characteristics that first come to mind? That you're single? Or you're married? That you're a lobsterman? Or that you're from here? Or you're a snowbird? Or you're living in this neighborhood? Or you participate in this activity? What are those things that come to your mind that kind of shape who you are? What Paul wants you to see is that if you are a Christian, fundamentally, first and foremost, you are sons of God, clothed in Christ, which means you are neither no better nor no worse than the perfection of his beloved son in the eyes of your heavenly father. And while all of those other characteristics about ourselves will fade with time, this one will last on into eternity. It will be the very nature of who you are throughout all of eternity. And this great equality at the cross should also warn us in our tendency to compare ourselves with others. Whether that's to kind of puff ourselves up as better or to beat ourselves down as worse. Whether it's to think ourselves more deserving of God's love or to think ourselves less deserving of God's love. This should serve as a sharp warning. You know, are you tempted to kind of tally up all the, the work that you've done for God, the sacrifices you've made, only to grumble when you see God's grace being shown to somebody else who you think is, is less deserving than you? In what ways are we as a church tempted to, in effect, create tiers within Christianity, classes within Christianity? Are we tempted, in a sense, to you know, look at our church attendance and, and declare ourselves better than the next because of the regularity, the faithfulness with which we attend or participate in events or the, the various ministries we're involved in? Or conversely, are we on the other side of the spectrum thinking of ourselves, well, I don't need to do all those things. I'm kind of, I'm free in Christ and wrongly seeing that freedom as somehow a, a cover-up to not have to go to, or not to go to church. And so we see that freedom as kind of positioning ourselves up above the rest. Whatever it is that might be tempting you, what Paul's warning is that we should be careful to ever think ourselves more or less entitled to the love of God or his grace because of our labor. 
And the more that we are able to be united in Christ, the brighter it actually makes our corporate witness to the watching world. As groups of people unite in such a way that culture would say they wouldn't unite. You know, as you have this group of people and this group of people, neither of whom seem to culturally fit together, suddenly fitting together, unifying those that our culture says should not be unified, we bring a bright witness to the power and unity of the gospel. So if you're a young and single Christian, do you realize that you actually have more in common with the widow elderly Christian on the other side of the room than you do with your non-Christian co-worker or roommate or even your sibling if they don't know Christ? Does your life reflect that? Does the way that you invest in those relationships and engage in those relationships reflect that? I mean, it's true that we spend lots of time with those other groups of people, and that's good. In fact, we should do that for evangelistic purposes, if nothing else, desiring that they would come to know this same Christ that we have come to know. But though we have schedules in common and bosses in common and workloads in common with those other people in our life, none of that compares to what we have in common with those that we share the gospel So let me encourage us as a church to look around at those not like us in the pews and to to have conversations and engage with and love those not like ourselves. And if you run out of something to talk about, if you can't think of what it is you have in common enough to, to speak of, well, then start talking about Christ. Start talking about how he saved you, how you share that in common. And I can assure you that your conversation will be sweeter than it otherwise would have been. So we, ha- we are, point number one, united in Christ. But then our union with Christ actually inherits a far greater reward than just a new community. It gains us God himself as our heavenly father, which is a relationship we are not born into, but one that we are adopted into which is our second point, point number two, adopted as sons. And what I want to do in this glorious doctrine of adoption is highlight five key truths about your adoption in Christ, which will serve as kind of five subpoints. They will be brief, but five subpoints for those taking notes. And the first will be your adoption rescued you. Your adoption rescued you. So look back to chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, beginning verse 1. What I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, he is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Paul's main point in these first three verses is simply to demonstrate or to show, to explain who they were before they were adopted, what their life was before their adoption. And he's highlighting that they were being adopted out of slavery, rescued from bondage. And so you see the child in the analogy is 
in the bondage of those who were ruling over and uh, guarding over as trustees and guardians until he was able to receive the inheritance that had been promised to him. But he applies that to these Christians, to, to us, by saying that we too were like children chosen by God. But we began no different than slaves to the elementary principles of the world, the basic principles of the world, like the rest of mankind. That, were the, that was the state of our lives until the time that we were to inherit this promise. Whether that was the condemnation of the law for the Jews, or probably for these Galatians, more like their pagan idolatry, the point is that each of us was or is held captive. Do you feel rescued? If you are a Christian, does the fact that God has adopted you feel as though God has rescued you? Or just that it was kind of a good thing for you to do? Probably a better choice than the alternative. Because what Paul wants you to realize is, no, you were on your road to destruction and God snatched you from the fire like a, like a burning stick. He rescued you as he did Israel out of Egypt but then for years later reminded them that I am the God who rescued you from bondage in Egypt to remind them that his adoption of them as sons was a rescue mission. But then how is this rescue to happen? Well, it was not a mistake. It did not happen by accident, but it was in fact planned. And that will be our second subpoint. Your adoption was planned. Verse 4, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Let's stop there. Your adoption, our adoption was of no surprise to God. His saving you and redeeming you, his delivering you from bondage was not a plan B. And it was certainly no happenstance accident. If you are a Christian this morning, God actually planned to rescue you. He planned to bring you into his family. Does that give you just a taste of God's love? And the entirety of the Old Testament testifies to this very plan of redemption. From Genesis 3, if you've been coming to Sunday school, we've referenced this a number of times. Back when Adam and Eve first sinned and were cast out of the presence of the Lord in the garden, and God gives to them a promise of a seed who would crush the head of Satan and overthrow the power of sin to the promise we considered last week that God gave to Abraham of a similar offspring or seed through whom the nations would be justified by faith. To then the giving of the law as well as the prophecy of the prophets and even the annual celebrations of Passover and the Day of Atonement all of it was God preparing his people for the coming Savior. So then it's no surprise when Jesus' public ministry begins that the first words recorded of his in the Gospel of Mark are chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. Everything 
from God's plan of redemption all the way down to his specific choosing to redeem you was part of God's choice, plan, and foreknowledge. He did not walk into an orphanage and randomly select you, but he planned deliberately and lovingly and intentionally. Even before the adoption papers were signed, he began preparing you for that day that he would be able to take you home. But friends, that plan came at a great cost, which is our third sub-point. Your adoption was costly. He said in verse 4 that God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Or if you're using any other translation but the NIV, it probably says that we might receive adoption as sons. We did not pay the adoption fees ourselves. We did not purchase ourselves out of bondage or out of slavery. We were, in fact, purchased. We were redeemed. We were ransomed by another. And the cost was nothing less than the beloved son of God. Friends, that is the good news of the gospel that Paul has been presenting week after week in this letter to the Galatians, that God saw us in our sin and would have been just to condemn us and pour out his wrath against it. And yet instead, he chose to set his affection on us. Not simply by closing his eyes to the fact that we had sinned, but by sending his son to redeem us from our sin, to pay the penalty for our sin. Jesus was sent by God, so he was fully man, or fully divine. But he was also born of a woman, so he was fully man. And he was born under the law, so he could come and as one who was fully man, he could fulfill the law as was required of us. So that when he went to the cross and willingly laid down his life, he did so to take upon himself the sins of all who would trust in him, turn from their sin and trust in him. So that Jesus, though he was the only one to fulfill the law perfectly, he would forego receiving his crown of majesty and replace it with a crown of thorns. Instead of putting on robes of royalty, he would be stripped of his clothes and be beaten so that he could bear the penalty of the sins of all who would turn to him in faith. This is how he redeemed his people with his own life. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, demonstrating that his death, his sacrifice was sufficient. And in effect, he purchased by his blood the very papers by which he adopted his children. This was how he came into the ownership of our adoption papers, that we, as he says, might receive adoption as sons. And there is the purpose statement. The statement that all of this was building toward, that we would be made sons of God, not merely freed from slavery and kind of left to ourselves, but actually freed and then brought into the family of God with God himself 
as our intimate and loving father. So that's going to be our fourth point. Your adoption makes God your father. Look with me at verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Of every reward, every rich inheritance, everything offered to those who are in Christ, this is perhaps the greatest blessing that he offers, namely himself. God as our Father. It was J.I. Packer, when asking the question, what is a Christian, he responded. The question can be answered in many ways. But the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. This is God restoring the fellowship that in our sin we broke. Bringing us back into his family. And drawing us so near that he actually fills us with the spirit of himself. Once fully separated, cast from the garden, now filled and dwelt by the spirit of his beloved son. So what does this mean for us this morning? What are the implications for us if we are in Christ? Well, I want to highlight, I think there are endless implications, but I want to highlight three this morning. And I want to begin with how it enables us to get full access to a loving father through prayer. For Paul says that God sent the spirit of his son into your heart who now cries out, calls out. There is an ability, an enablement that we are now able to pray to God as Abba, Father, a loving God. Do you view prayer this way? Do you view prayer as communication with a loving father? When you pray, what is your thought of God's listening ear? Is it preoccupied? Is it busy? Is it disinterested or even annoyed? What would change in your prayer life? If you held fast to this truth that when you pray, you are as a child speaking to a loving father who delights in his children coming and speaking with him. And if you've never had a good example of this, let me just share the comforting words of Jesus from Matthew 7 when he says, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? What prayers seem too petty and insignificant for you to bring before your God? Jesus prayed for his daily bread, for his daily sustenance, for God to provide for him every day. Christians should be marked by a fervent and unceasing persistence in prayer. 
confident that our Father delights in both hearing and responding in the manner that is best for us. But we should also seek to pray for what is in accordance with God's will, what's in accordance with his word. You know, when my daughter asks me for something, if it's something that I know is for her good and that I think would be good to give her, it is my joy and my delight and privilege. It is even my honor to not just hear that, but then to answer by providing. But when my daughter asks me for something that I know is not in her best interest, or that I've even told her not to ask for. It is my act of love for her to deny her her request and even at times to discipline that request so that she will ask rightly the next time. You know, a good book on this is called Praying with Paul. It's by D.A. Carson. It used to be called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. The revision is Praying with Paul, where he walks through the prayers of Paul and tries to pull out good principles, biblical principles for us to think through as we're praying so we can pray in accordance with God's word. But I want to add a second implication, consider a second implication, which is that when you are adopted as sons, it means that we have every reason to trust God's protection, his provision, and his purposes in our life. He will not let anything befall his children that will not finally be intended for their good. Now, Packer again said, we have transitioned, not simply out of condemnation into acceptance, but out of bondage and destitution into the safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. The safety, certainty, and enjoyment of the family of God. I still remember a story, uh, the, the first time that my daughter heard a vacuum turn on. I mean, her eyes got like this. And she, couldn't, she only crawled at the time, but she crawled as fast as her legs would let her go and came as quickly to me as possible. But what was interesting is the moment I picked her up, it was as though fear was gone. Her circumstance hadn't changed at all. She didn't even, she still understood no more about the vacuum or what it was intending to do to her. But now that I was holding her, it was as though her fear had not only dissipated, but she now had the confidence to let me lead her toward the vacuum so close that she could touch it. Well, what happened? Not a change in circumstance or even an understanding of circumstance, but an understanding of her father who was holding her. And her father's intent for good. And when God is our father, we demonstrate this childlike faith, knowing that he will only work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so we trust him in this way. Where is that at risk in your own life? What concerns about the future tempt you to not trust God? In this way. Well, a third implication of being adopted is that we are also filled with the Spirit of Christ. And the Spirit's work is not only to draw us near to God, by whom he, we call Abba Father, but also to conform us more into the image of Christ. The very 
one whose spirit he is, which is how you actually discern if the spirit has, in fact, been sent into your heart by faith. That is that was Paul's point back in chapter three when he said we not only begin by the spirit, but we are brought to completion by the spirit. That when we are crucified with Christ, it is no longer us who live, but it is Christ who lives in us. It's what he'll spend the final two chapters of this letter arguing for, that the spirit indwelling you means the spirit is producing fruit in you, conforming you into the likeness of Christ himself. So is your response to adoption an increasing conformity to the father who adopted you? Does the fruit of your life testify to the working of his spirit in you? How is that being manifested in your life? If the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, what would your family or your roommate or those at work say about that being demonstrated, manifested in how you carry yourself Or how about those here in this church? Are you exposing your life such that they can speak into it and testify to the Spirit's work in you? I've heard one person refer to the church as a a assurance of salvation cooperative program. It is this cooperative program that we work together to assure one another of the Spirit's work in our lives such that we can be confident that we have been adopted as sons. But all three of these implications, whether it's prayer or the ability for us to trust God as Father or the sanctification of the Spirit, all three of them are described in this kind of present tense, immediate reward. But our fellowship with God actually assures us of something that is also to come, an inheritance yet to be received. Uh, It's all a foreshadowing of something greater. And that's where I want to turn in our final Subpoint: your adoption guarantees your inheritance. Verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. God has made you also an heir of that which is to come still. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The fullness of our inheritance will be infinitely more glorious than our present fellowship and communion with God because we will actually worship him and see him as he is. What will this be like? I'll spend this afternoon reading Revelation 21 and 22 and get a glimpse. I'll give a brief excerpt from chapter 22 when John, speaking of the new heavens and new earth, says, No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. They will will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the glorious inheritance that is awaiting those whom God has adopted as his sons. An inheritance that compelled Martin Luther to mark only two days on his calendar. He said he always had two days marked. He had today or this day, 
and that day. This day and that day. That day when he would be ushered into God's holy courts and brought into the fullness of his inheritance that he would receive as his adopted son. Do you look forward to that day? Do you live in anticipation for that day? There are so many things in life that we mark on the calendar with great excitement and anticipation to come. Whether that's the first opening game of the Patriots kickoff or what will probably be the Patriots Super Bowl kickoff, Super Bowl kickoff. You know, we get excited and live with anticipation. But we should be filled with infinitely more anticipation at the inheritance that is to come. What can we be doing even this week to remind ourselves, to keep ourselves aware of this great reward that is coming for those who are in Christ, a promise that is sure for all who have been adopted. For verse 7 says, it is through God that we are made heirs. For it was God who rescued you. It was God who paid the price of his beloved son to fulfill the plan that he had planned. Who purchased your adoption that is irrevocable and restored fellowship with you as his beloved child and assured you of the inheritance yet to come. So let me just ask one more time. What is your fundamental identity? And what does that not only mean about who you are, but the very future that you have before you? For those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have been clothed with Christ, we have been brought from slaves to sons. And if sons, then heirs. We have together been united in Christ and adopted as sons. Two truths that should fuel our ability to live lives of faithfulness between now and when Christ comes back at the fullness of time to bring us into the fullness of that inheritance as his children. Let's pray. Our Father, we do praise you. For you alone deserve all praise and glory and honor for your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Help us to be reminded of our adoption in Christ, our union with him, and to live as those marked by being filled with his spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.